Welcome to Dropping In from Omega Institute, a podcast that explores the many ways to awaken the best in the human spirit. I'm Callie Alpert. Dropping into our Omega studio today, Dr. Andrea Pennington. Dr. Pennington is an integrative physician, acupuncturist, esteemed speaker, and best-selling author specializing in self-love, mindfulness, and authentic self-expression. She is nationally recognized as an expert in meditation, resilience, and trauma recovery. Welcome, Dr. Pennington, and thank you so much for dropping in today here on Omega's Rhinebeck, New York campus. So good to see you. Thank you, Callie. It is an honor and a pleasure. Pleasure to have you. So in thinking about our conversation today around the topic of resilience, I looked up the definition. And I came up with two, the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties and the ability for an object to spring back into shape, which is a little more on the scientific side. And you say in your book, The Top 10 Traits of Highly Resilient People, that resilience is part of our DNA and that we're hardwired to bounce back. How so? What do you mean by that? Well, we humans have an innate vitality code. In our DNA, we have this knowing how to return to homeostasis. So I like the idea of the the ball regaining its shape. Mm. When we think about resilience, we do think about bouncing back. When we think about resilience, it's usually in the context of having some stress, some adversity. That could be an illness, an accident, an injury, a disease process, a pandemic. And then we retake form or we return to baseline. And within the human organism, within our DNA, we have this ability to return to a state of homeostasis. And that means that all of our body's systems and physiology can return to its baseline of the capacity for for great health and for vitality. Why do you suppose it is that we don't know that? That doesn't seem like something that's really advertised too much in modern society. Often it feels like it's the opposite, doesn't it? You know, that's a really great question. I think as as I've been doing research on resilience for the last 20 years, I've only come to realize that it's an innate capacity that we all have. But I think most of us only look at the people who bounce back from the most severe tragedy or loss. And we think, oh, that's what resilience is. You have to go through the worst of the worst. And when you were left for dead or thought that it was the end, here you come springing back up. Right. And of course, that is that is resilience. But that's probably even beyond resilience. That's post-traumatic growth. Mm. And we all have that capacity as well. But we have to get to that resilience part first. So I think that we do tend to look at, at our own situation and think, well, I don't have it as bad as other people. Mm-hmm. So we downplay definitely our, our sense of strength and capacity. There's one other weird thing about resilience that I want to tease up early in our conversation. And that's about burnout. Mm-hmm. There are some people who will mislabel themselves as resilient. And they're really stuck in a codependent loop of overdoing, overgiving, not practicing good boundaries or self-care, and they just get dumped on. They're like a doormat. And in their mind, they're like, but but no, I'm resilient. I'm still here. I'm still kicking. But resilience also involves, in my mind, a sense of returning to baseline, but also being able to thrive. So if you are going through hardship and drama and trauma 
and you're still alive, that's great. Mm. <laughs> we want you to survive. Mm. But getting to a point of thriving is, is the ideal so that we learn how to create better boundaries and we learn how to manage our stress and we model that to people. So in many ways, you know, this pandemic has been kind of a blessing for so many people. I've had clients tell me they are grateful that the pandemic did what it did and forced them to stop, to stop work right. in jobs that were not well aligned, not well suited, to stop overgiving to family because they were literally killing themselves. There are many people who told me, I was in burnout, but I didn't even realize right. it. Mm -hmm. And being forced to stop and go within and look at, what is my lifestyle? Is this really serving me? Like, I've taken on things that I say I have to do. I just have to do it. Right, the shoulds versus the wants, the mm. heart versus the head. Yes. So it's been an eye-opener, and I think more people are realizing, um, I mean, resilience is something we all need and we all have the capacity for. I love the nuances that you create um, and the way that you sort of take the definition of resilience to another level where it's well beyond baseline and just surviving and treading water. It's really about thriving. I think that's such an important distinction to make. Before we get to the idea um, to COVID and the pandemic and um, dig a little bit deeper into what you just referenced, I'm also curious what you think about the fact that we're so conditioned to soldier through I find. And that often, I've had these conversations many times with friends where something is difficult or going on, and then they'll say, oh, but I'm not a, and they'll give an, a, an example of something that's very extreme on the news where someone's really struggling somewhere in a faraway place. And they, like you said, they sort of minimize it. Why do you suppose it is that we have gotten so good at just barreling through things rather than stopping for a moment and giving ourselves some recognition and a hug? Hmm. For many of us, it's cultural, yeah. it's societal, and it's familial. So if you, from the time you were a kid, you were told to suck it up, don't cry, don't be so sensitive, oh, it's not that bad. We learn to downplay our pain and our suffering. And like you said, we learn to soldier on because it's what is socially promoted and acceptable, whether at home, whether in the media, whether in our society. And that's unfortunate because there have been many good people who burn out, who develop illnesses. Developing an illness as a result of pushing beyond one's limits. I think fortunately, maybe it's just the world that I swim in, but it's changing. Like People are learning the difference between good, healthy boundaries and giving from your overflow versus giving out of this codependent need to people please and to give to others to your own detriment. So there is going to be a, a shift, I think, societally. I think right now, like when I look at the work that I've been doing in the, in the world of self-love, yeah. it's been decades. And at the time that I first started, people were like, self-love, isn't that <laughs> a little self-indulgent? Mm -hmm, exactly. Whereas now, it's, it's kind of a commonplace term. And I think the same thing will happen with this idea of self-care, that we don't have to just soldier on and suck it up. And of course, you know, persistence is one of the top 10 traits of highly resilient people. But we also need to have that balance 
of self-care and discernment, discerning when to say no, when to create those boundaries, when to say, tonight I need to give myself what I need, the rest, the compassion, or like you said, a hug, instead of soldiering on and pushing through. And I think right now it's a beautiful opportunity for parents as well, mm -hmm. as many of us have been sheltering in place with our kids a lot more hours than we ever <laughs> dreamt. But what I've noticed with my own child is that it doesn't matter what I say. The way I live my life is right. what she's learning. She right. learns. I mean, children learn through modeling exactly. our behaviors. And so now is a beautiful time for people to realize that maybe I do need to take breaks. And that's not just about taking a nap or resting. It could be for fun. Like, learn from your children. Children need breaks where they can just have fun and not be doing reading and math problems. But that's the same thing for us as adults, being able to take the time to just do something fun can be very nourishing. So rather than looking at, you know, I was very guilty of this. I was a productivity hound. <laughs> I had to be doing, doing, doing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel worthy of rest and relaxation. Like, that's for wimps. That's for sissies. You know, for I need unambitious. to be. Oh, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's for lazy people. Mm -hmm. And I had to go through, a, you know, some bumps and knocks till I got to the point where I realized, no, the full human experience involves play and work. Yes, there are times when we need to be serious and there are times when we need to be lighthearted. And I think there is a, a bit of rebalancing that's happening. It's, we're not going back. I mean, well, who would want to? <laughs> yeah, when, when people talk about uh, going back to normal, I pray that we don't. I think this dismantling, as you're referring to, or the word a lot of people use is uh, very valuable for many. Again, you know, we have to say in, in deep um, deference that a lot of people, you know, that people have had greatly different experiences through COVID. And there's been obviously, you know, a lot of pain and suffering um, and inequality in the way people have experienced it. And yet, if you're picking some of these broader themes and generalizations, one of the ones I'm, I'm hearing come out of um, what you just said is also, besides the being and doing thing, is the um, the difference between stillness and noise, mm. and the fact that it sound it feels like we've been so uncomfortable with stillness. Stillness is what you do. When you have a practice, when you adopt a, you know, you take a vacation, when you decide you want to meditate or take a day off on a Sunday afternoon or go to church or whatever it might be, as if that's the exception and not the rule. Right. And I think what I'm hearing you, um, and, I, and I hope is the case, is that we're starting to maybe reintegrate that concept into the, you know, the norm so that that's more of, um, that's more of our go-to versus the exception and the kind of diversion, that it becomes more of um, the rule. Yes. Well, that's yeah. my prayer as well. Uh, I think we had to go through, well, many people went through noise, the internal noise that comes from, I can't go and numb or escape mm -hmm. by being at the corner pub or bar or you know, diving into work for more and more hours and coming home to sit with yourself can be pretty noisy when you're in silence. 
But over time, we develop a certain tolerance for that and eventually a preference for it, <laughs> if you stick with it long enough. Amen. I, I, absolutely. I was thinking jokingly in my mind as you're talking that it's not pretty, especially at the beginning, because often it's crisis or something that forces us to that place. And then you decide, and then you commit, and then you find great practitioners like yourself, and then you commit some more, and then you break through, and you realize like what a beautiful gift it is to even have the choice to, to do so. Yes. Yeah. And it is a choice. Even if we feel like we're too busy, you know, making a choice for stillness, for developing a practice, rather than waiting till burnout or breakdowns, we can choose. And in as little as a few minutes a day, we can start changing long-held patterns. We can start rewiring our brain, reprogramming our subconscious mind. Yeah. So that is my prayer as well, that the idea of stillness and peaceful and quietness can be integrated into our lives going forward. I heard a quote recently that said, we experience collective struggles so that we can be resilient. Now, I don't know that that's, that's certainly not a prerequisite, but I wonder if you can speak to the difference between group pain and individual pain. Does one lend itself more than the other to, to the idea of resilience and the bounce back process? Hmm. Well, they're both equally valid. I think what the pandemic has done is it has shown us that we are an interdependent family. Yes. And it has shown us that each of us actually has a part to play. We matter. Even a single individual matters in what we do. So in many ways, we might have thought, oh, well, what I do today won't affect someone over in India or wherever. But now we recognize every little act counts. So the way I think about this idea of group resilience, I mean, it's absolutely necessary because we as a species have got to, you know, as some people say, evolve or die. <laughs> no choices in between, right? Well, there might be something in between. <laughs> I don't know. It, but if we choose the, the path of evolution and evolving into our highest and best capacity, like what humans can be is magnificent, mm. where we are certainly concerned for the self, but we're more concerned with us as a whole or the planet. So this idea of group resilience means that we can endure these financial setbacks and political uprisings and social discrimination and the fear and the chaos that COVID-19 brought. And as a collective, we can weather that storm and become better. So with post-traumatic growth, we are talking about leveraging adversity to become better, to grow, to evolve, to expand. And I truly believe that that's what this group resilience is showing us. I believe we are becoming better. I'll give you a short example when the Black Lives Matter kicked off in 2020 in the midst of the pandemic where I live in France, I was so surprised to see Europeans demonstrating. Why is that? Why are you so surprised? Because for me, being a 
brown-skinned American and watching things happen from across the across the pond, it seemed like a very American issue. Mm. You know, the racism in America, sexism, all of the phobias, all of it, I've lived with, I've seen, and to me it's a very American problem. And I wept seeing the number of black and brown people killed and a lack of justice. I've wept so many tears. And then when I saw people in Copenhagen and people in Paris, I, at first I was like, what, do they really know <laughs> what they're protesting about? Like, wait, what? It, and yes, there, there are solidarity movements around the globe because they may not be black Americans, but there are people being discriminated against, people whose deaths have been uninvestigated, crimes against women, crimes against homosexuals. And to see that shifted for me. It shifted my perspective to see that what was happening in America was inciting a revolution in these other countries where they too were saying, yeah, people have been suffering in silence and no more. Mm. We're mm-hmm. going to take to the streets. Yes, in the middle of a pandemic where we could be fined or jailed. And that is when I really started to have this, this greater appreciation and renewed faith in humanity that people would put themselves at risk when they didn't have to. And that shows me that we are evolving, that we are moving into an era, era when we can look at people around the globe as our brothers and sisters. Mm. And it's not okay that you hurt, kill, torture our brothers and sisters, and we will not be silent. So that collective idea of our interdependence, that is a sign of an evolved consciousness. We are evolving. I say Dr. Pennington for president. <laughs> um, mm. but, but truly, I mean, what you say, it, it does. It gives me goosebumps. It's, um, it's hopeful and it's important. And I think that uh, so many people hope that there's a collectivity happening because how much more can we possibly bear um, how much more is necessary for us to really get it? Um, I would ask you this as a follow-up question. What do you suppose is a, a step that would take us closer to a we as opposed to a me mindset? The next step is maybe just sharing. I think people are seeing it. When I overhear conversations, especially being back in America, yeah. I'm hearing the conversations that are coming from we, a we perspective. And I think sharing, I don't mean like sharing the misery and you know griping, mm-hmm. but if you have found a little bit of peace, share that with someone who needs a little bit of peace. It may not be the total solution, We've got a lot of work to do. There's going to be, most likely, if you believe the experts, (laughs) it's going to be years of recovery work. So if we can focus on what can I do in this moment to make life a little bit better for someone besides myself, and that someone could be in your family, it could be just being kind to someone on the street, someone standing in line. If you find a little bit of peace, share it. If you find a little bit of joy, share it. 
like that is how we move from this I to we. And I think that's the biggest thing that I've seen. I've seen so many people get support from people they would have never imagined would support them. And that to me shows me that we're moving into a we mindset. I hope so. I do, and, I, and I'm with you in, in that belief, and there have been such extraordinary stories that have been shared. And so I think it's, it's important to hear what you say because it reminds us that all of these words and thoughts and gestures have energy, and they all ripple. Yes. And most of our connectivity is in ways that we don't see, I believe. It's as Gandhi said, be the change mm. you wish to see in the world. So if you want peace, bring a little more peace. Share that. And it I know it sounds lofty, but I'm I'm really tuned into some of the things that my mother has taught me. Um, I've shared that my mother is um, dealing with Alzheimer's mm. and had a stroke in the midst of COVID. And it's really thrown me for a loop. And really just thinking about all the, all the good things, all the, the lessons. And there's one that really stuck out for me. My mother used to say, and as a kid, I didn't really understand it, but she, she said, never underestimate the impact that your presence has on a person. It's not even all about what you do, what you give, what you say. But when you walk into a space, how, what sort of presence do you bring? It's impacting them and they're going to go off and have their day, and you have impacted their day, maybe in silent ways, maybe in not-so-silent ways. And that has really been sort of super present for me, is to think, I am impacting everyone I come in contact with. Whether we're in some deep, profound conversation or relationship or not, my presence and how I show up, how I look at them, do I greet them, do I smile, what energy do I bring? So if I want more peace in the world, I need to bring that peace. I need to be that peace and share it. So profound. And what a beautiful reminder for all of us just to hold our own space in a, in a responsible way, just in a, in a mindful and responsible way. It's such, a, it's such a great reminder, I think, for everybody, no matter what room you're showing up to. And most of the time, you'll have no idea. Yeah. And sometimes you'll hear about it years later, and it'll shock you, right? I think we all have those stories. Yeah. And, all, and probably most of the time, you'll never know. Exactly. And that's fine. Um, but what a beautiful, that's a great reminder. Thank you for that point, and blessings to your mom. Thank you. Thank you. Received. It reminds me of something I, I noticed in France. In France... Every block or two, there's a boulangerie, there's a bakery. And where I live, there's a lot of older people. And in, in the south of France, you can do a lot of things on foot. You don't need to be in cars or buses and taxis. And being in France for a while, you start to see that there's this natural rhythm. And you'll see the little, <laughs> little folks show up to the bakery and they get their little coffee and their baguette. And I remember being a former type A aggressive American, <laughs> kind of coming in like, I mean, move it along here. Let me get my stuff. Let me get my baguette. Let me get back home. And the, after being there for a while, I sort of watched this tiny little old guy come up. And I watched how the, the woman at the, the cash register 
greeted him as if she knew him. She knew exactly what he wanted. And they had their own little exchange, mm-hmm. you know, like, how's the missus or how's the dog? And for once, that busy American, like, would you please get on with it? <laughs> I could just be present. And I'm thinking, what an impact this woman is having on this little guy who has to go do the, the shop for his wife. And then as he walked away, like, he's taking that little moment of connectivity, of compassion, of being seen, being accepted. How might that affect him when he gets home? What is he going to share with his wife? Like there was this moment of realizing every little thing we do, it doesn't have to be that you're some big star doing every little moment of interaction matters. You know, in preparing for this interview and, and thinking about you and, um, and your many specialties, um, but rooted today in our conversation about resilience, I was thinking a lot more probably about um, some of the questions we started with earlier and, you know, different modalities and what resilience means. And now in, in hearing this story and just talking about the concept of the we versus the me, it feels like that plays beautifully into the seeds of resilience in the most organic way, mm-hmm. just humanity at its most basic foundational form. Is that too much of a stretch? No, it's, it's perfect. You know, one of the top traits of resilience is tolerance and compassion. So being able to look at yourself and realize that I, as a human being, am going to age, maybe get sick, eventually pass away. That's realizing that we have this shared common humanity. Another one of the top 10 traits is positive connections, positive relationships. Mm-hmm. So as we start to really look around, I think <laughs> a lot of us have learned through this experience who our real friends are. Oh, yes. The real connections. And that's a good thing. But it's also allowed us to see, am I being a good friend, mm-hmm. a positive connection? So it comes back to the basic seeds of humanity. We as human beings are social creatures. What did you learn most about yourself and your capacity for resilience in this last year and a half? My biggest lesson was around service. I turned 50 during the pandemic. Happy belated milestone. Thank you. And one of the things I decided is You know, there was a lot of gunk that I carried (laughs) Mm. in the first, you know, half a century of my life. And I made a vow that I don't want to carry that going forward. And I've learned a lot. And I'm a a teacher by nature. I'm a healer, a teacher, and I, I love sharing. And one of the things that I was given the opportunity to do during this pandemic was to be of service. So there are many people who physician friends in America who never learned how to be online. They were like, hey, you've been online forever. Show me, what do I need to do so I can survive? That's what an ocean will do, right? Yes. So I I was able to, to be of service and support people in developing online brands and all of that thing. And then there were people in my community who were really suffering with anxiety. Their PTSD was being triggered. I mean, longstanding issues were now really coming to the the forefront. And so I was able to 
provide guided meditations, to show up, to do sessions without, a, you know, thinking about money, but just to be of service. Because when you see everyone panicking around you, what do you do? You don't just save yourself. You want to save everyone that you can. As things start to open up and people start to find their way into re-entry in, in different varying degrees based on where they are in the world, I sense and hear and, um, and, and even have these conversations where there, there's still so much fight or flight and fear and waiting for the next shoe to drop and trying to navigate some sense of reclaiming a version of trust in both larger infrastructures and just people that we're bumping into in the supermarket. How do you suggest people start to unpack that and maybe regain some footing when it comes to trust and comfort and safety? I say honor yourself where you are. Some people I know were like ready to just jump back out. <laughs> yes. Let's get out in the world. Yeah. No more masks. No more isolation. Let's go. And some people really did have and still have major anxiety. And so I say, honor where you are right now. And that means tuning in. How do you feel? Do you feel super excited? Or do you feel a little trepidatious? And don't take on any shame. There's no shame in the fact that, yes, maybe your friends and other family members are out there doing things. If you don't feel that you're ready for that, honor where you are. This is also a really good time to, to get into introspection and to identify where some of your tendencies are coming from. Because maybe you've been holding that anxiety in check and this experience has brought it and magnified it, mm -hmm. brought it to the forefront. But it's also a healing opportunity. It's such an interesting dance to observe you know, when we're out in the world, uh, when, when we're not getting caught ourselves, and when you can sit back and be a witness here and there to the negotiation and the navigation that we're all kind of dancing in, mm. um, trying to honor yourself, trying to not judge or, you know, you do see a lot of people that are in, in judgment or reactivity with strangers constantly. And, um, and it's fascinating to see, you know, where, where people sit in that. Um, but I love what you said about looking at it as an opportunity to unpack further. You also talk a lot in your work about the self-speak, our inner narratives, mm. those good old narratives perseverating, looping in our brains, um, and then obviously about self-love and radical forgiveness and self-forgiveness. Do you think that these themes are magnified now in the world, or do you think that they've always been there? And how do we use them for the most productive purpose right now? In my work for the last 20 years, this theme of having this inner critic and not loving oneself has been there. It's been there for, for as long as I can see, and even now reading from so many of the, the great masters in psychology and spirituality, we see that the human organism goes through this state of beating oneself down. I do think that not having the normal outlets to numb or uh, escape 
has brought these things to the forefront, where people are recognizing, yeah, there's this majorly critical voice inside my head beating me up, telling me that I'm no good, that I'm not worth this, that, or the other thing, or that you know, I'm not enough. And having lived myself with that experience, and I didn't have just one inner critic. <laughs> I had a whole Supreme Court <laughs> justice you know, team of critics that, that judged each and everything about me. Mm-hmm. And then they become friends, right? And then they start talking with each mm-hmm. other, which just sort of exacerbates the whole thing. Yeah. So... <laughs> I do think that more people are aware of it now, and, and because self-love has become kind of a, a catchy term, people are recognizing, like, yeah, maybe I don't love myself. Maybe there is something I need to investigate there. And we're, we're quite blessed that there are so many more conversations about it than when I started. For me, the idea of growing up not feeling good enough based on what we experienced as children, either having a dysfunctional family life, growing up with an alcoholic parent, or experiencing some sort of trauma or abuse and neglect. Many people who had that experience grew up to be adults who don't love themselves. Right. Now, we don't typically walk around saying it, but there's this pervasive feeling of not enoughness, unworthiness. And I think what we're seeing now is that that brings a tremendous soul ache to the forefront. And when you're faced with a crisis, like what we've been living, where people are losing jobs, losing homes, losing relationships, losing loved ones, not even being able to go and see those loved ones. When we're faced with all of that chaos and uncertainty, if you fundamentally don't believe that you are worthy of love, and a happy life, it makes it very hard to get up in the morning and push through. Right. So having this sense of self-worth and self-love, I think, is magnified right now because we are in such desperate times. And we, for many of us, have not been able to do the usual things that we would do to numb out. Now, of course, some people are still using drugs and alcohol and, and other things Food to distract. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, I think self-love right now... Uh, and being able to really be honest about the inner talk and finding out where did where did those conversations come from? Because they're all just stories. Like everything about our existence is all a story that we tell ourselves. And even though we think that this is the pervasive reality, like this is reality, it's not a story. Oh, it's a story. <laughs> It's, it's maybe a collective hallucination or indoctrination, <laughs> mm-hmm. but they're just stories. So, for example, I carried this story that I was not enough, not smart enough, not fast enough, like just all of it. And getting to the point of being an adult living with imposter syndrome, it didn't matter how many degrees and certifications and accolades, I felt not good enough. But when we start to do this inquiry work, to ask, well, where did that thought come from, and is it true? Now, in my case, it did serve me to have that belief. It made me be a good student. You know, hearing my father say, school is your only job, Mm. you need to get a good education, that's your only ticket to safety and security. All that artistic stuff, being an (laughs) artist, no, 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 that's not safety. So for me, I became this 
people-pleasing, approval-seeking, outside-validation addict. And it served me because as a young child, I needed to feel loved and accepted by my father. I saw what happens when you don't have that, and I didn't want that. And so it served me to a point. And then I had burnout in my early 30s. Right. And I got to a point of depression and realizing, like, what is this life for? What am I doing all of this for? I'm never going to get the ultimate validation from my father because I am an artist. I am an entrepreneur. I'm doing things my way, and it doesn't fit his old paradigm. And so I had to ask myself, is this belief serving me now? It may have served me then. I can thank that part of me that took it on because it helped me get where I am. Right. It's never in vain. Never in vain. But sometimes worth... Worth investigating. And then letting go of. Yes. Mm -hmm. And in my case, I got to let go of perfectionism. I got to let go of this idea that I'm not enough or that I'm only worthy if I'm achieving or doing or producing. So would you say in closing that this trajectory of you learning self-love has made you a more resilient person? Would you consider yourself resilient now? Yes, absolutely. I consider myself a super ninja when it comes to resilience. And I'm really grateful for it. I mean, there are so many things that I would never wish on anyone else, but I recognize that they were part of my soul's journey. And I'm so grateful to have learned what I've learned and to now be able to share that in service and to let other people know that they're not alone. So I'd like to close with uh, three short final questions that I like to ask each of our guests. The first one is, I'd like to grant you one wish for our listeners. What would it be? I would wish that all of our listeners awaken to the truth of who they really are. And if I were to grant a wish for you to grant yourself, what would it be? Hmm. I would grant myself the wish of more time for play. And finally, what would you most like people to take away from our conversation today that you feel like they can bring back into their lives if you could choose one point, one offering? The one thing I'd like everyone to remember is that you were born with an innate capacity for resilience. It's, it's there. It's in you. You can expand and develop these resilience muscles so that you don't just survive. You can thrive. Thank you so much, Dr. Pennington. What a gift and what a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you. It means so much. And before we say goodbye, if our listeners would like to find you online or learn more about you, where would you like to steer them? You can visit andreapennington.com or innatevitality.com. That's I-N, the number eight, vitality.com. And that's for more of the health and wellness information. But you can also just, you know, find me on social media. I'm, a, I'm there. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you. Thanks for dropping in with Omega Institute. If you like what you hear, tell your friends 
and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new ears find us. Dropping in is made possible in part by the support of Omega members. To learn more, visit eomega.org slash membership. And check out our many online learning opportunities featuring your favorite teachers and thought leaders at eomega.org slash online learning. I'm Callie Alpert, producer and host of Dropping In. The music and mix are by Scott Mueller. Thanks for dropping in.